Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? You're trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good morning, good evening, good night, entrepreneurship and leadership channel listeners on the New Books Network. I'm here today with my co-host, Kimon, and our guest today is Andrew Smart, who's joining us from Bangkok. Andrew's the co-founder of Slater, and rather than me try to introduce him, Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself the way you would to a random stranger you meet at a party or a business networking event? Well, if it was a random stranger at a party, I'd just probably say, hi, my name is Andrew, and, and then see where the conversation goes. <laughs> um, if it was at, you know, say, an industry conference, I'd probably say, you know, I'm a, I'm a commercial director at Slater. We're a business news research and advisory organization to the global language services and technology industry. Uh, and so we just try to help people build their businesses. And I would say... Andrew, you sound like an American, but you live in Bangkok. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, I am an American. I, I've lived in Asia for every year from 1993 until the present, except for two years in New York City. Um, you know, I first moved out to Singapore in 93 to work in the stock market as an analyst. So my background's actually in finance and in investments. Um, I covered a wide range of sectors and helped a couple of companies go on IPO. And, and then I moved on to the dealing desk before there was an Asian financial crisis. So you, um, who did you send? Like, so you're working for a big company. Somebody sent you out there. Uh, like, who were you working for at the time? No, no, actually, um, I got the job myself. So I, I, I finished my MBA at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. I was looking around and I actually wanted to work on Wall Street. Uh, but, you know, the U.S. was still kind of coming out of its 1980s. 80s, late 80s recession, early 90s. Um, so I started looking around the world and, and I wanted to look for growth markets and Hong Kong and Singapore were booming at the time and there was a lot of discussion about the Asian tigers. So I literally took the uh, Singapore phone book, I started writing letters because- you know, But sorry, you went, first you went to Singapore, you, you obviously didn't have the Singapore phone book in the US. You, you actually, you, you, you flew, you said, I'm, you said, I'm going to Singapore is- Well, it was actually Singapore and, and you know, they actually created these economic development board offices in places like Washington DC and Boston and around the world. So they did a roadshow at our university while I was finishing up my MBA. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Um, and uh, since I'm originally from Hawaii, I thought maybe move out to the Pacific. And uh, I started doing more and more investigation on Singapore. And it was a high growth market. Um, it was the Asian century, as they would say. And um, so I took their phone book and I started writing every bank and stockbroker in town and um, wrote about 110 letters to different people. And told them I was just going to be there. And, and I got a courier ticket, flew out on a plane, was in the YMCA for two weeks, making phone calls from a payphone. And I got my first job with the Development oh. Bank of Singapore Security. Okay, I got to I mean, I have to, but Richard, I know you want to say something, but you have no idea how similar this is to my story. It's like mind boggling. No, like seriously, I, I left after university, it, it, I, so I graduated in 92. I'm not sure when, but and I, I moved out. And so I got just an English teaching job, but I also wanted, I spotted Eastern Europe basically as the, the place to do stuff. Yes. But anyway, long story short, I got the Krakow in 93 and I got the list. Uh, what I, I did a little differently than you. I went to the American consulate and I got the list 
of all the American companies in Krakow. And I would like literally go down the list mm -hmm. and call every single company to see what I could do. But like, it's just so funny that that like sounds like the exact, like almost like yeah. the exact same. Exact uh, and, same. And, and, and just to <laughs> add a little bit of repetitive, repetitive action when I was organizing some event in New York with a, a, a New Yorker, a, a nonprofit, we divided the, 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 the membership list and were manually copy pasting. Hey, hi, this is, this is Richard, you know, hi, this is Jordan. We so basically for anyone listening, there's an entrepreneurial lesson here. If you want to get someone in live, you're going to send a lot of emails and letters that people are not going to reply to. And every now and again, someone will reply and that might be your thing. But I, I wanted to say, you, obviously your first step was getting a job. Would you, when you were, a, but you went to business school, did you always have the idea you're going to be a, a, a have your own business one day or would, would your parents be quite surprised to discover that you, you now were a company owner, Andrew? Um, probably. Uh, it was not the original plan. My, my original plan was to get involved in the capital markets and to work uh, as an equity analyst and, and then as a dealer. Um, and, you know, after working at DBS for a couple of years, about three years, I, I moved on to UBS Securities and I was on the dealing desk. And um, it was all ready for prime time until, you know, one of these uh, global black swan events happens and there's an Asian financial crisis and about 75% of the industry finds itself unemployable in, in a matter of like days, if not weeks. When was um, this? Which what, 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 what? this was 1997 when okay. when you know Thailand started valuing its currency and there had been all this debt across Southeast Asia and there was an Asian financial crisis that, that shocked the the stock markets here. So your first lesson to all of your viewers is if you want to go get a job or do anything in business development, it doesn't matter whether you have to write a letter, write an email, make a phone call. You just you just target who you can, and it's a bit of a numbers game, and you will succeed if you put sweat into it. Uh, the second thing is no matter how great you think your plan is, the world can blow it up, and you have to find a way to make a living again. So all of a sudden, I'm out in Asia you know, doing the job I always wanted to do, and of course, uh, you know, it's not there anymore. And, and you, know, you have to think, well, do I go back to the US and try and get that job, or what do I do? And by the grace of God, uh, some British friends I know put some punting money into a British web design firm, and they wanted to open up um, their first office in the US, in New York City. So I had to decide, do I completely abandon my career and go to New York City and get involved in this infant industry that people are talking about, you know, with the internet and web design? And, uh, you know, try to make a career out of it. And at the end of the day, you know, it, I realized the, there were odds here. There, were, there was significant risk in getting involved in a startup, getting involved in opening up a new office for them, and going to New York City and pitching something at an early stage industry cycle. Um, but I also realized that New York is full of, of, of potential prospects and clients. And uh, if, you, if you can't, you know, it's not as hard actually as people think. It really is a numbers game. You just have to get out there and start contacting people and, you know, speaking with them intelligently and, uh, you know, um, make it work. And we did. And so we were able to get traction in 1998 and 99 in New York City. And then I returned to Singapore to open up the third office uh, in 2000. And then a couple of years later, we sold. So what was this? So sorry, let's just understand this business a little bit better. So what was this business like? Uh, so this was like early Internet. Uh, obviously, this is 90. You said 98. So this is very early Internet uh, yes. days. And what was this? It was like an 
an agency? You said it was an agency? It was a classic web design agency before ad agencies had the capability to understand, okay. you know, the basic technological elements, uh, you know, in okay, some so you ways. you want to have a website of, you want to, have to create your business website, that's what we yes. do, we create business websites. Yes. And, and this was a job or you were a co-founder of this? No, I, I joined, uh, it, was, it was founded in 1995 um, by, by a genuine entrepreneur, a guy who had that sort of that long-term vision. And I realized that he also needed people to help make it a realization. So, you know, he was a great guy who could go into business meetings, articulate what's going to happen and actually lean on people at the right moment and, and, and close. So I also learned, you know, quite a number of things in, in practical sales from watching this guy close. Um, and, and really, it was just about problem solving. You know, there was a lot of uncertainty about what, what this could mean. Right. How do you use these tools and this technology? To be honest, a lot of the same sort of soul searching that's happening in the language industry that we cover now, right? I mean, people have just been through this five, seven year cycle with machine translation and other technologies. Yeah. So um, at the end of the day, you're just trying to take the technology that's available and figure out how to apply it. So I was more of a business development guy. I would be the account director. I would manage things. I'd get it to a pre-sales consultant level, and then I have to bring in somebody with a little deeper technical knowledge than me. We'd iron it out. We put in the project. So basically, I was doing IT enterprise IT light, if you will. Yeah, completely. But different. sales, but no, but hold on, you were doing it in New York as well. So that's like hardcore. I mean, whatever. I was I was born in New York. I grew up in New Jersey, and I got yeah. all, all my friends are from like that, like New York sales guys, actually, and that's. Uh, that's hard. That's not, that's a, that's, that's not an easy, uh, that's definitely a, a, a whatever, a school of what, what's the right expression school of fire or whatever school by school yeah. by uh, whatever you look, you, you really had to learn in, in a tough environment. So I'm sure that was valuable well, for you. I it's mean, trial by fire, but I, I was fortunate in the sense that, you know, by going from, I, I'm an analyst by nature. I was not a natural born salesman or anything like that. I had to learn these skills when I went onto the dealing desk I had to completely learn how to, to, to be short and concise and because and, I'm usually verbose. And, and then so, so when you go to New York, you don't have a lot of time to no. make cold calls it's like, hey, you know, I want to help you. And, uh, you know, they, they say yes or no. The great thing about New York is they don't waste your yeah. time. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. Not oh, yeah. interested. I mean, some people think it's rude, but it's just like, no, I don't got time. <laughs> I, got, I, got the, the, I got the rudest business communication I ever, ever got from a, a podcaster in New York. But that's a separate story. But I just want to when you, you said the game plan was going to equity sales. Does it, when you were like a little boy, like 10, 12, 15, before you were like thinking about career. Sorry. And Richard, by, by the way, in Hawaii. Okay, when you were a little, when you were a little boy in Hawaii, you said the game plan was equity sales. Was that we, we like financially motivated? You just say, hey, Wall Street, that's where the money is. I, I want to have a good lifestyle. I want to make some money. Or was what I know how? Just like we don't have to go too into the psychology of it, but it's like well, we're always curious. Where did it come from, and what did what, what were you going to be when you were little in Hawaii? Well, you know, I'm happy to explain how it sort of manifested. Um, you know, I was born in Hawaii, which is a multicultural society, and I took all of that for granted. And then my parents moved to Ohio, where they were originally from, when I was in, you know, in high school, and I finished high school in Ohio. And it was a big culture shock. You know, everyone looked like me, but it was a, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a Midwest culture shock for me. But it also made me realize at that time, I liked international business. I liked learning about different cultures and people. And um, so, so I started looking around for university programs at the time. My, my grandfather was also a banker, and he started as a banker back when, you know, before there was a Federal Reserve, before the Great Depression. Hmm. And he used to talk about business, and he used to share these stories about, 
you know, you're only as good as your word. And, you know, I have a banknote with his name on it as the, the, the treasurer of the bank. And, you know, when you talk about putting your name on, on, on something and having it mean and have any value, you know, this, these are the lessons you taught me. And I always thought banking was fascinating. And then I realized that actually I really wanted to get a little bit more aggressive in, in sort of like capital deployment. And I started looking more and more at finance. And I thought, this is fascinating. This is great. You've got a lot of really smart people. They've got incredible ideas. They're looking for capital. They're trying to build things. They're trying to build teams out. They're trying to, you know, of course, make money. Um, and it's really about as competitive as it gets. And the other exciting thing, it's the horse race that never ends. So, you know, you may have a bad quarter, may, things may be going wrong, but you look at companies like IBM that reinvent themselves over and over and over again, or Microsoft, which was, you know, yeah. kind of going down and now is, is again, a juggernaut, right? right. Um, so, so, you know, it's just, it's just really interesting for me on a personal level to watch and learn from these people. And I try to turn that into a career by thinking, well, what kind of analysis can you do and where do you place your bets? Mm. So I think you're the first person I've ever met who, and I've met a lot of people who actually were like went into banking and finance because it was an exciting window on the world and it was like a competitive environment. And, you know, that's really great because a lot of people, they just do jobs because, you know, that's what other people expect of them. But it sounds like you were pretty, you were pretty intentional and focused back then. Yeah. And, and, and to quote a, a guy from New York, nothing says I love you like cold, hard cash. But <laughs> <laughs> You know, so so people vote with their dollars, right? But but at the end of the day, good ideas do win. I mean, there's always some hype, there's always some you know over enthusiasm, there's always these market blowouts. Um, but but at the end of the day, um, you know, it was it was a great experience because I got to see how different people run their businesses without having to actually make the initial risk myself. You know, making and recommending companies, and it gave me the courage that when this crisis happened to maybe. Uh, jump in with a bunch of guys who seemed to know what they were doing and um, see if I could contribute and turn mm -hmm. that into to something worthwhile. But you really, your well. education, I mean, education-wise, I'm thinking, sorry to interrupt, but the education that you, first of all, you got the MBA, but then you also had this, then you did this analyst education and then you did the sales education. I mean, you were just getting this world-class education. I mean, preparing, you didn't realize what you were preparing yourself for, maybe. <laughs> but, well, I probably still have a few bruises beneath the skin from talking to some very senior fund managers who are like, who the hell is the guy calling me, man? He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> there, are, there are a couple of lessons to write. One is that it's really interesting. You were aware in this high school in Ohio that you look like everyone else, but you were different. That it's very important like, to realize that you need to ask a few questions to get under the skin of someone. And the fact you had this Hawaiian background would have not been apparent until someone chatted to you. And, and also the fact that you took control of your life you, you know, you, you had this irregular American, what looked like a regular American life, but you knew you wanted to go international. And for anyone listening here, you could be at any country in the world just listening to Andrew's story and say, hmm, well, maybe I should go to Peru or maybe I should go to Asia or, or you know, yeah. help, help, rebuild, help rebuild Ukraine when the war's over. You know, there's, there's all these different opportunities available if you just see widely enough that it's, it was in your hands. You just took that initiative. So you flip back to New York, right? And you, you and then... Then, then what happened? Well, I was in New York and we were making it work. Uh, and, you know, we set up our offices on, on Broad Street right across from the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, 
we were we were having drinks at the top of the world trade center <laughs> windows of the world i've been there <laughs> yes indeed and we opened our bank account in the chase in the basement there the chase <laughs> bank in the basement and um you know it was going it was going well and and so they asked me to you know if i would go back out to singapore and open up the the, the singapore office so so i did and, and and then while i was there of course september 11th happened and it was very surreal watching this on tv and thinking about all the people you knew that were directly impacted it was it was it was really awful to be honest and uh so uh that said um we we had to make some hard decisions with the business and it needed additional capital so ultimately again a black swan event came in and this time harmed this business and it was almost a fatal flaw so merce data who had put some money in took over the business and, and, and then made it part of their larger offering. So they were a great company to work for. So now I was getting my, my third ed- education in what it's like to work for a very large Danish IT company. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, guys that anything uh, $5 million or under, they just write off at the moment of purchase because that's not even what a propeller on a ship costs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, we're, we're living in this world where I'm doing thirty, fifty thousand dollars contracts and these guys are, are like five million is a rounding error. You know? did, you say, did you say Maersk as in the shipping line? Did you say yes. Maersk? So, so Maersk Zealand so, has had an IT arm to service all of its uh, businesses and Maersk Data was the IT arm. Maersk are famous for being hacked, and I can't say too much details because and it was on the media, but my one of my daughters works in uh, IT security, and Maersk is one of the biggest sort of logistics hacks where they're taken down by, this was a few years ago now, but their entire operations were brought to a halt for several several days or weeks. But, and so maybe it was your fault if you were in Maersk. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> the web, web design from the late early 2000s uh, was, was the yes. fatal flaw in the... <laughs> <laughs> well, it was that JavaScript bug, you know, so, uh, you know, but we, we were involved in that at a time when you literally had to hand code every page for every different browser type. It was, it was a nightmare. Right. So as technology advances and, and as tools become more and more, you know, ubiquitous and easy to use, I would say that, you know, not, not jumping forward too fast, but Slater today is a beneficiary of generations of, of tools like, you know, now WordPress and guys like Stripe coming in to facilitate e-commerce and all kinds of SaaS products that wouldn't really make it possible for us to be a startup. So I know I'm jumping ahead, but, um, you know, I just wanted to, to, to highlight that as much as things may have been tough in the early days and you then you get sucked into these big corporations, um, you know, you can never stop learning. And, and, you know, I also got a lot of practical management lessons from, from the guys at, at Maersk. So I had a great boss, you know, he was running the, the region in Asia out of Japan. Um, you know, Maersk has a, is almost like the embassy of the Danish government when you think about all the trade and everything that they run. And they had a, a massive office right next to the Imperial Palace and you walk in here and you're looking, and I just love the little details of things. So I walk into this office and it's, I'm looking at the power structure so that when a Japanese, you know, government official walks in and how he sees this, this, this office of the managing director that's larger than most people's houses, right? Mm. <laughs> and it's got yeah. all these different areas. And you can see out the back window, there's the uh, Imperial Palace. Oh my goodness. And you're just seeing the, yeah. the dynamics so this is, of it. You're, so you're in Japan, sorry, I got a little confused. So you went yeah. back So you went back to Singapore. Yes. I you went, so, and then 9-11 happened. And then yes. Maersk 
uh, I was still over. based in Singapore, but now I was helping them around the region oh, okay. and they wanted me to visit okay. the head office. So I'm sorry about that. I didn't make that okay. clear. Yeah. But again, you know, it, I, it, for me, when I travel and for all these businesses, it's, it's these little subtleties and the color commentary that I find so fascinating. Totally. So here you are going into a Danish company that's operating in Japan and you've got these power structures because the Japanese are a major trading power and this is a major shipping company. You're thinking, what am I doing here? Mm. Um, <laughs> you need a website? Yeah. You need a website, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, 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 yeah so for those who don't know, Maersk is one of, the, one of the world's, if not the world's biggest shipping company. It's one of the top, top shipping companies in the world. So, you know, if, if someone's going to block the Suez Canal, it might be Maersk, but it wasn't. Um, and so how long did you last there and what, what, what caused you to move on from Maersk? Well, we, we sold the business into Maersk and I was there to integrate it. And, you know, after after a year and a half or so, I was thinking, OK, I'm, I'm not really, you know, an enterprise IT guy in the world of shipping. It's just it's, it's not really where I thought I'd want to be. Um, but, you know, it was it was a great experience with Queen there. I want to take a slight detour since you talked about managing people and leadership. So the boss that I had there at the time, you know, he 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 I saw two things at Maersk. One was they hire so many people in such volume that they were doing psychometric testing and other things that I wouldn't normally agree with with a small company, because in a small company, you have to try and get to know people and you have to make you have more of a feel to it. But, you know, they would they would kind of put people into these cubby holes. And uh, they, they lived and died by it. And, it, you know, it was kind of, kind of brutal in a way. Um, but the, the other aspect was when they, when they let people go, when they did their reviews, and if somebody wasn't really quite working out, they're, they're actually pretty humane about it. And so one of the lessons that I learned is, um, you know, well, the, nobody should ever not see it not working out or that the firing is coming. And, you know, you have talked conversations with them you can you can have uh, normal conversations with them and quite frankly if their contract says you need to pay them out a dollar you know pay them a dollar ten and 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 make it easy to to just for them to say yes and everyone walk away on on good terms you know uh, being bogged down in commercial disputes doesn't benefit anyone doesn't benefit your management time wastes a lot of time and money builds a lot of ill will in the marketplace I think there is a really important lesson that a lot of smaller entrepreneurs are rather arrogant about big companies and say, oh, we've got a cool small company culture. But if you work in a big company, the reason they're big is because they're good at something. They wouldn't yeah. become a big company if they hadn't been good. And like learning how to manage people, learning how to organize things. There's a lot of, you can't be a company that big unless you're well organized because otherwise you'll, you'll get killed by your costs. So, so, you, yeah. so, you, so you, learned a bit about, you learned a bit about how to run things at Maersk. Yeah, I think yeah, uh, I, I just comment to that as well. Actually, I do think that that's that, that is a very important thing, and that's a big flaw with small companies, is people take things personally, and you actually just address the actual, like I, I totally buy into this, and I, you know, and for whatever reason, I was lucky enough to not get sucked down the, the path of being like, oh my God, you don't like my company and you're leaving or, or, or you know, leaving is one thing or you have to say goodbye to somebody. Um, and I totally agree, you, 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 should, you should always, even, even if you were the one saying goodbye, you need to do that on like going, going with a positive way is always better because this is, you know, they're angry, like people are angry, like how could you do this? Or like you didn't perform the way, but you know what? A failure is is always two sides two sided in, in in these things. It's not just the company is right and the employee is wrong or vice versa. And so I, I think that's a huge lesson that you just actually mentioned that particularly yeah. for younger people that that, that 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 just don't 
it, it's always better to end things on good terms. <laughs> Basically, you never know what's going to happen. Your 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 enemy your enemy now could be your friend tomorrow. Your friend tomorrow today can be your enemy tomorrow. Yeah. So um, yeah. And, and and on top of that, I mean, I remember the first time I had to fire someone. I think I was twenty three in my first business here in Poland, and you know, I literally had a sleepless night because I just didn't know how, didn't know how to do it, and. It's like very often when you're starting a business, you imagine the good stuff, you imagine, you know, the success, the the nice things. And in fact, if you're going to go down that road, there's tough stuff and it's not fun to fire people. And you can do it with class. You have to give people a chance, give them a chance, doing it, doing it properly. And so you're going into the weeds of like the entrepreneurial journey. You have to get good at the nasty stuff and being good at the nasty stuff is actually probably more important than being good at the easy stuff because it's it's, it's, it's it's easier to be good at the nice stuff, I guess. Well, I wouldn't call it nasty. I would just call it firm and professional. I mean, you know, uh, and, and I, I would highlight that. I think whether you're a small company or a big company, when you talk to staff, you know, and you have your annual reviews and maybe a mid, mid-year discussion, you know, really you should be talking about also what this person really wants, you know, also out of their career and out of their life. And, and you realize is that, you know, unfortunately in this day and age, um, you know, sometimes the only way for people to make significant salary gains is to actually leave your company. So I, I sometimes often wonder if, you know, you have people for, if you're lucky, three or four or five years. And, and people talk about, you know, the generation today even being on a shorter cycle. So, I, you know, I'd probably flip this over to Kimon because it's like, you know, as you go from, you know, four people to 40 people to 400 people, you know, um, the structure and the same people you have in certain leadership roles when you're a small company, you know, they're not always capable to be the guy at the much larger company and there's nothing wrong with them. They haven't done anything wrong, but how do you, how do you manage that where you bring in? It's a big, big, big challenge, especially if you're growing fast. It's really, it's, it's one of the, you, you, you hit the nail on the head of one of the, that, that particular thing is actually very complicated. And, but like, I, I would take away the the conversations. Like I, I guess for whatever reason, we've always been focused on. I personally always am interested in. I'm just interested in people, and I'm just interested in what do you want to do. And so, the, you know, what happens, Andrew? Actually, in that case, is you, people get repurposed. Like as long as, okay, let's start with this. I believe in something called the uh, bank account of goodwill. So if you're good to people over time, you're making deposits in, in this bank account of goodwill. Now, let's say a change moment happens or things need to change. If you've treated people well and there is an opportunity for them to do something different and they want it, that's, they really want to do, that's actually the way we're, we solve that problem. People get moved around mm-hmm. within the organization into different slots, new, new initiatives, new exciting things, things that they want to do. But the thing is you need to get that alignment that this is something that we need and it's important. And this is thing you want to do. And when you get that, that's like the goal, but that, that allows you to, you know, and as long as your intentions are always good and you've always been good, but that's why it sort of goes back to how do you treat people? <laughs> like you have to have a track record of treating people well to be able to more easily, it's never easy, but to more easily move in that sort of area. And, and, and if you do hire people who take things for granted, you treat them well and they, they just suck it up, you've screwed up because you hired the wrong side, wrong type of people as well. But yeah. you know, if, if, if things go wrong, you have to look in the mirror and take responsibility. And yeah. you know, it, it seems to me from the way you've described yourself, you weren't the kind of person who took your life for granted. You, 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 you had quite, despite, despite your, you know, I guess, supportive family and your good high school and your university, you had to deal with quite disruptive major events. So you, and you could have easily blamed the world and said, you know, it's not my fault the 9-11 happened. It's not my fault the financial crisis and started getting angry and resentful. But somehow you just like bounced back, right? 
Well, and we've just been through that with COVID, you know. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, if anyone were ever to tell you that uh, you know, international travel and, and business meetings, you know, would shut down. And so here we were at Slater and, you know, we're a young company and <laughs> we're finally getting some, some, you know, advertising and some research and, you know, about a third of our revenue on a, on a small scale was, you know, events at the time and literally like, that's gone. <laughs> <laughs> what do we do? And, and, you know, there was a moment where I think everyone in the world was probably thinking in like April and May, like, okay, and, you know, am I going to be able to stay in business here? Or what does this mean? What do I have to do to survive? Um, and, and I think, you know, um, thankfully, once people realized by the third quarter, like the world hadn't come to an end um, and that, you know, they started to feel their way out of it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people had to make some adjustments and, and, and we did online events that ironically were more profitable than our in-person <laughs> events. So, uh, you know, go figure. Um, and, and so now we're looking at the return of in-person events kind of going, well, you know, do I want to, do, do we want to go back or not? At, yet the market is there. So how can you say no? So, so, so you get these curveballs all the time. I would say, you know, anyone that's listening, if you, if you live to be 50 or 60 years old, the world's probably going to blow up on you every seven years, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be something you never would have ever figured out in a million years, you know? I, I, I'm a bit worried you're saying if you live to be 50 or 60 years, a significant number of our listeners are not going to live that long. And I assume it's going to happen on the way there as well. But um, I don't know whether, if you can, like, maybe we, we've been, you've been talking about Slater from time to time, but do you want to take us through how, how you what, what's the origin story of Slater? How did that come into well, being? I just like to get the jump because I think we're going to get, I think there's a key moment between now and Slater that also contributes to your whatever, to what you end up knowing how to do that helps you get involved yeah. in Slater, yeah. if I recall. Yeah. So you were asking about, you know, leaving Maersk data. And mm. um, uh, um, so, you know, I, I resigned and, you know, I was living in Singapore and I was thinking, okay, well, what am I going to do next? And um, uh, to be honest, um, I was literally, you know, sitting, just happened to be sitting in my car because I just met with a friend. I just parked the car and I got a phone call out of the blue. The only time in my entire life I've got a phone call from a headhunter. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, you know, do you want to work for Fairfax Media? You know, they're an Australian newspaper company. Um, they bought this enterprise IT magazine in Singapore and, you know, they're having some trouble making it work. And, you know, you know, would you be interested in having a look at it? I'm like, well, where's their offices? And they're like, oh, they give me the address. And, and I'm look out the windshield of my car and the building's right there. And I'm thinking, this is weird, man. <laughs> it's like, why is the building right there? So, you know, you, you don't you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. And, and I found it interesting. And so I joined them and I worked for them for about five, six years, um, building up an enterprise IT community. So, so it was a culmination of, of what I learned in the stock market and sort of analysis. And then you look at how people do these sorts of sales. And, and then it was like enterprise IT light. And then, of course, um, uh, the other thing that was really beneficial for me working in the web design industry is that marketing and sales are not always push. It's, it's really pull. You know, you want to find out what people need and you want to try to get that out of them. And then you want to try and give them what they want, what they need, the way they want it. Um, so, you know, we got into this community building and, and, and you know, I enjoyed it. I, I found business media pleasurable. Uh, I then went from there to Thomson Reuters, managing an Asian legal community. So now I'm dealing with lawyers instead of CIOs. <laughs> 
<laughs> and we're starting to do awards and everything. Like that. And that's where I met Florian. So that's the segue to your question. Okay. Florian was with CLS. He was working, you know, in Asia, in Singapore, and then Hong CLS Kong. CLS is a translation company for those that don't. Yeah. Yes. So a Swiss translation company that he was expanding their business in Asia. So he had started with them in Singapore. He had gone out to the Singapore office, and he was trying to open up different markets, including the legal sector. So we, we he saw what we were doing, and he he sponsored, you know, some of our events, and he could see that, you know, there's an engagement model here. And so we again had news, you know, the sort of Thomson Reuters news model. Model. Um, uh, no fluff, just news you can use, as they say. Um, we did these events where you meet people and you engage them, and that's great for lead generation because uh, it's on a thought leadership basis. Um, and so he was like, hey, man, no, no one's doing this for the language industry. Um, you want to give it a try? And then initially I was skeptical because I'd never heard of the language industry. I was like, what, right. what are you talking about? You know, this is the most pervasive industry that nobody's ever heard of. Exactly. So, so it is literally everywhere. So I, I kind of I kind of had to get my head around it for a while. Um, and, and then, you know, he's like, okay, let's do this. And, and we decided to, to, to do it. Um, and I think he, 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 he was able to, you know, I came in with the, the business model and this is how, you know, you run a news operation and, you know, initial website design and, and things like that. He just jumped in and he just applied his domain knowledge and he, he, he did heavy lifting on the editorial side and, you know, and then we started selling ads where we could and, and, and then it's grown. So it started we, though, is it, <clears throat> you guys started a newsletter. It was a newsletter. It was like Slater. Uh, it was yes. just like subscribe to Slater.com. Uh, yes. That's it. So it was like an online newsletter. And what, what, and what, and was, you, was it free at start? Sorry, when you started the newsletter? It's always you, free. It's free. The, 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 the email news was just a free newsletter. So it's remarkably similar to Polish market review that Kimon Founded, yes. Yes. Well, I talked to Andrew uh, a lot about this uh, as well because I, whatever, I'm a huge fan of Slater, but like that. Let's not. We don't need to go completely into that yet. I can talk about how much I like it. I just wonder, sort of technically, you were working. Like, were you and Florian working, or did you guys quit? Like, like at which point did you? Because that's always the key moment, right? You, you yeah. had a job, and like you, you had this idea. I assume you were sort of moonlighting Slater at the beginning. Uh, no, or, or so we're not. So Florian, Florian. Uh, was you know uh, CLS was being acquired by Lionbridge, so so he okay. helped hand that off, and then he he wanted to to be an entrepreneur, and he okay. he really um, uh, jumped straight in. Me, I hedged my bets for a little bit, working <laughs> <laughs> a little bit longer. I, I I did a I did a side gig with uh, ACCA, which is an uh, uh, an accounting um, body that helps, um, emerging markets. So I was going around Nepal and Myanmar helping educational institutes learn accounting and, and then teaching that so that people could better their lives and, and earn more money. Uh, and then I joined, um, a little bit later. Um, but, but, but for those first two years, you know, there was very little money coming in. We, we built from the ground up. We, we leveraged relationships running round tables for companies in, in Asia um, you know, and Linebridge was a big early supporter. So, so okay. the lesson here, I'd say for in, using it as a case study for your broad yeah. audience, we, we had to start from scratch. We had to build an audience. Um, so everything was free initially. Um, and you have to make it easy for people to subscribe and you start to build your audience. And then you have to take the money from where you can. So we were, we were selling banner ads as revenue for whatever we could get. And we were doing events 
And, you know, you just, you just start chasing every possible dollar you can. Yeah. And, and you know, you have I to. I mean, so, but you guys started, like, I can, years, yeah, I you know? can tell you, and it's interesting. We can just, I'm so curious how this then built, but like, I, as a user, I'm a consumer. I was a consumer of your media basically and you guys were way better no i mean there was like nothing there no seriously it was like uh, i remember it's like you you came out of nowhere it was like uh wow there's all like if you can imagine like if you if you're in a business for many many years and then all of a sudden you see this professional slick concise well-written like newsletter that free (laughs) useful and free coming every day or every once a week i think it was once a week into your it still comes once a week into your inbox so Like, obviously that you guys were really, so, I mean, I think one lesson, other, one lesson is also you and Florian, whatever, it's a good fit. Like you guys are clearly, were a good fit because he brought, as you said, some uh, initial domain expertise and you brought like, how do you actually do this like professionally? And then, uh, you know, once it got going, I mean, so what happens? So I, I think but, 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 quickly, I'm... sorry, relatively quickly, you got to, because I think the base of this type of business is get that free list of, you know, uh, basically potential client base that then you can try to sell stuff to. I mean, how quickly did you get it from zero to, I don't know, a sizable number of people listening or subscribing to you? You know, I think if you're, you have the benefit of a lot of capital, you can, you can hire people, you can hire editorial, you can do more marketing and you can probably accelerate growth curves a little bit to some degree. We, you know, it was all organic. And um, so it probably, I'm trying to think when we were like celebrating 3000 followers on LinkedIn, (laughs) 4,000 and 5,000. So now we're about ready to hit 25,000. That's that's crazy. Later, you know, and for an industry like ours, that's, it feels like almost everybody. Uh but Andrew, I've got a question about the, the business. You, you didn't jump in right away. And I, both you and Florian had professional backgrounds. It wasn't like you were backpacking students coming from nowhere. So did you have a feeling this could be big money? Because you mentioned there wasn't any money. You were, you were sort of scrapping for every client you could find. So on the one hand, you know, you must have had a core belief that we can make some decent, we can have a decent income out of this. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting words into your mouth, but, you know, quitting a professional job where you get a professional salary to do this as a side project, you know, yeah. what, what, can you just talk us through your mindset there? Because it's, it's, it's not completely intuitive to me that, you know, if I had a professional salary, I would start doing this unless I saw a crock of gold at the end of it. <laughs> Well, I think, I think, you know, if you will, the big money will, will come, but that, that was not the initial uh, target, if you will. To me, it's, it's you know, can I, re- can I replace this and can it be more secure, if you will, um, being my own boss and can I enjoy the benefits of being my own boss? Um, but I have to confess in those early stages, you know, Florian was bolder, at, you know, in making that leap where I hedged my bets a little bit. Um, the did, you put, did, you, did you did you put money in? Did you did you? Can you tell us how much you invested, or is that confidential? We 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 both put in a little bit of money and a lot of sweat, and and we didn't take cash out for for two years or or maybe longer, and and so there was you know an inherent burn, and so me living in Singapore, which was the world's most expensive city at the time, was part of the reason why I kind of hedged a little bit, and then I realized that and wasn't you know, he in China? I think he had an advantage. <laughs> was he in China? <laughs> no, he had returned to Switzerland. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's not, that's not cheap. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, but, but, but at the, at the same 
same time. So you're feeling that burn. And for me, like moving to Bangkok with my wife and, and like getting the cost base down and getting to that. So another thing I would share with people in general, it doesn't matter what business you're in, the sooner you can get to just break even $1 of profit, it takes so much pressure off you. So in those early days, cost low, cost, you know, get your costs as low as possible. Uh, that's why a lot of great businesses actually start up in recessions. You know, people almost have no choice. They have to create something to happen. The costs are all down. They hire people at you know lower salaries, and they just get after something. And mother is the necessity. A mother is the invention. Uh, the, the, sorry, necessity is a mother of invention. And um, <laughs> so, so you know they, they, they just get after it. So so I would say that you know Florian did a lot. The the, the positive say about Florian is he really put his back into it. He he really learned editorial and writing and you know he, he really committed to this and he, and he built an audience and he still built an audience and he still has a hunger today for what's happening in the industry in our industry it's really really hard if you think about it to know about everything that's happening in every industry vertical every single player to kind of do advisory on the technology side you know so so you know when you're looking for a business partner you have to look somebody who's you know, energetic um and and committed and, and again, how the fit works, because, you know, there, there's going to be great times and clashes yeah. and how do we get yeah. along and stuff like that. Yeah. So so I would say, you know, my role was on the commercial side, the structure side, the you know, the product, the, the you know, and, and then commercially, you know, when I got involved very, very full time, it was just like, how much can we drive this? And, um, you know, working on the structure together of how to build it, say, then our first research reports and where do we price them out of? So, so if you want to talk about the evolution of our model as a case study, it was free. It's a freemium model. We you have yeah. to build audience. You have to get eyeballs. You have to get attention. Um, then when you start to offer that 10% that might buy something, you have to get them to, to make the, that first purchase. We did, we did, um, you know, low price points where now we can move the price points up higher or as opposed to some people come in high. I remember meeting you uh, years ago. I can't remember which one. I met you a bunch of times, but I remember telling you guys, you got to rate these prices. You got to rate yes. the prices. Yes. <laughs> yes. Of course, I was a consumer, but I was thinking about from your perspective, your business, like you need to raise the prices because people will pay. This is better. This is better quality than what, what's out there. Um, yes. But we also have to work on the service model. So, you know, here we are, we created this website, you know, we over, you know, we overcomplicated the, yeah. the, the, the product set, which, you know, I'm partly guilty of, yeah. um, you know, we were doing so, but there were a couple of other things we really wanted to do when you really think about it. Um, I, I, I hate to say this, but I hated people sending us their press releases. And I was like, PR web gets paid. Why, 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 why do people <laughs> want me to work for free? So we took the PR web model and we adopted it and, and we, we actually created it into a voice for small companies in yeah. our, in our sector. And that was a need that they didn't have fulfilled before. You know, they put on PR web, it goes into an ocean, nobody cares. Exactly. Uh, but all of a sudden now it's getting pushed out to people who they know and who they care about. And then it starts to get searched and indexed on Google. So all of a sudden, you know, we were kind of started coming up with these different solutions that were working for people. Um, so so uh, I think, you know, we just started to build from the ground up and now we have a, a subscription model and our subscription model is still less than half price the competition, to be honest. And, uh, you know, we continue to try and deliver more value. And, and, you know, we can probably push prices up from here. But, you know, everything at its own time. We had to build a service model now that, you know, 
makes makes it workable. Okay, can you obviously COVID might distort this a bit, but can you give us just for our listeners or viewers a sense of the numbers? Are, are you in the millions, tens of millions of dollars of revenue, and like, and how, how much money you're making? You know, simple simple private questions like that. Well. I would say that uh, I can't really talk about numbers only because I think I'm sure Florian would kill me. It was a couple of years ago. It was probably a year, year and a half ago where, you know, like I'm in, in Bangkok and I'm like, okay, the pressure's off. Um, and, you know, we're pretty much at replacement salary and we have upside on dividends and we're about ready to go at what I would consider to be phase two of this company. So we're, we're, we're at six, seven years. We just launched a new website. You know, actually, when you look at this, I just want to, if I can blow our own horn a little bit, there are very few media companies or research companies providing digestible, uh, affordable research that you can buy off the back of a credit card and then also have a subscription model. So, so, so we provide a lot of flexibility for people to buy just what they want instead of, instead of trying to shove the all-you-can-eat buffet down their throat. And um, then we provide these other services as well. And then on top of that, you learn so much that we're now trying to build an advisory service. So, so we're about ready to you know, go from 14 people to hopefully 40 people. And we're going to go through a whole bunch of growing pains that I should probably defer to Kim on to talk about because going from 14 to 40 is another challenge. Is it not? <laughs> yeah. But let's talk a little bit about your business. Just, just for, again, I think the listeners, cause I know about it and Richard actually knows quite a bit about it, but basically, so you started with the, the just so people get a full sense, you started with a free newsletter and then into that you built out some, well, first of all, I guess you did some advertise that you, you, you allowed people to advertise banners and stuff like that in the newsletter. Yes. Then you have press. You pay. You have people paying for press release. But in addition to that, you started doing live uh, conferences, in-person conferences, yes. as well as online conferences during COVID. And then I think a big piece is is this. Uh, you said there's research. You guys do research reports that people pay for. And now when you say advisory, I assume you're talking about sort of M and A, like sort of uh, helping with M and A uh, brokerage type. Uh, type stuff is that it's, is that what you mean by advisory or I'm not really sure when you say advisory it's, it's, it's a mix so um, you know we we have companies ask us uh, for our market views and we provide briefings uh, to mm-hmm. their to their boards um, okay some, sometimes when they're in a situation where they're thinking about expansion or they might want some custom research um, if if uh, they're say in an acquisition process, sometimes even private equity. Will yeah, they want to have about, somebody do a presentation. Yeah, well, they also want, uh, you know, impression like, uh, like, you know, what are the price pressures? What are the mechanics? Is this, is this really going to grow? They, they, want, they want to make sure that their investment thesis is sound. So they come with us and the, they want us to help kick the tires on, a, on an investment. And also, um, you know, think about, well, are there any adjacent opportunities where, you know, this company can grow geographically or into, into an adjacent vertical? Um, and, and so they, they, they come to us for advice. And then, of course, there's M&A advisory where, okay. you know, because, because we have the language service provider index, because we, we know so many people through news and research that it's actually a great familiarity and a, and a, and a trusted familiarity. It makes us uh, a much more natural approach. So, so we, can, we can help matchmake a lot more thoughtfully if people bring their investment criteria to us. We can run a long list that we can filter with the client and we can get very specific on targeting. And so, and, and, we, and we can do the outreach that, you know, it's not a spray and pray. It's just not like, 
I mean, you're, you're a business owner, Kim. How many times a week do you, do you, do you get an email from somebody saying, do you want to sell your business? You know, it's, oh, it's yeah. I mean, forget about it. No, no, but I, I want to ask about relationships because obviously both you and Florian had a sort of background in face-to-face sales network and networking with people. And on the other hand, then when you started a newsletter, like you're in Asia, Florian's in Switzerland, and the, the big players in the industry aren't necessarily in those particular places that you were. So what did you do to actually get to know people? Because now I can imagine you're doing events. You can, you know, you can get to meet people at the events you organize. But how did you develop relationships from your newsletter? Did you call people up when they came from the right companies? And what did you do to migrate them from just a guy whose email you've got to a guy who says, oh, wow, great, it's Florian or it's Andrew. Nice to, nice to talk to you. What did you, did you, did you have systematic phoning up of people and stuff like that? Um, phone calls, email, various outreach, um, you know, thankfully, uh, uh, because of the good work, you know, that the editorial team and Florian were doing, you know, people like Kimon would, would see this and go, oh, this is actually really interesting. And so people would start to reach out to us. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so, so it was a mixture of outbound and inbound. Um, you know, you have to start building up your, your, your profile. So, you know, again, you know, CSA probably had, you know, a 20 year start. So there, there were people in the, in the space, they had a 20 year start on you. They had deep databases. You have to start building up your database. You have to start reaching out. You have to start trying to, you know, see, you know, and, and I think a lot of companies are smart enough to know if a media company approaches them. And, you know, they're not trying to dig up anything or throw dirt. You know, we're the business media. We're the nice guys. We're, we're like, <laughs> going well. Any lessons we can learn? Uh, and uh, so, you know, it's, 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 they're more receptive to talk. So thankfully, actually, media is, is you know, if you do it right um, and you cover people and, you know, they, look at, they start to look at how you're managing information and whether or not you're trading in gossip and, you know, um, whether you actually verify your, your things and you choose, you know, what, what it is and you have to stick to your, your ethos as a publisher and say, you know, this is what we're here to do. We're here to help people build their business, right? So we're not here to dig up dirt. We're not here to, here to slam people. We're not here to get involved in commercial disputes. You know, we don't know. We're not lawyers. Um, so, so let's just see what we can do. What, what, what information can we provide to help people? Um, so, so we had to do a lot of outreach initially, um, you know, it's, it had to bubble up organically. It took a while, uh, you know, it's been a long, hard road. We had to then finally ratchet up our salaries, which was good. Um, and I would say that, you know, we're on the doorstep now, of hopefully a phase two, uh, that will potentially be transformative because, you know, Florian has young kids. <laughs> <laughs> we got to pay some bills. We got some bills to pay. We need to... <laughs> this college education's around the corner. But actually, actually that, 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 that also is there's a gener- generic important point here, which is like tailoring the business to suit the life you want to lead. That, you know, people talk about a lifestyle business, but, you know, it could be, you, you know, if you're a single person living somewhere relatively inexpensive, you know, like say, say Thailand, you can probably live quite well on 5,000 bucks a month. But if you've got two kids and you're living in Zurich, it's not going to work. <laughs> so, so you need to tailor your business to yeah. meet the, your personal goals. And uh, what about your situation? Do you have kids you have to feed and stuff like that? Or are you, are you, are you just like uh, living in the yachts and private jets and golf clubs? And... <laughs> no, uh, I, I have two daughters. Uh, one is it's still in, in, in junior, is a junior in high school. Um, the other one started uh, university in the Netherlands. 
from mm-hmm. all places. She, she uh, went to the IB program. Both kids were in the International Baccalaureate program. Mm-hmm. So my daughter, uh, through her own self-selection, started looking at European educational opportunities, chose the Dutch, which I fully supported. I think the, the, the Netherlands is great. I think you know it's a country that punches way above its weight in terms of trade and innovation. And, um, and also the, a lot of the universities teach in English. So yeah. she, she had actually strangely studied German and, and is pretty fluent in German. Um, and uh, also a little bit of Mandarin and, and of course English. So she, she, she's studying now in, in the Netherlands. And uh, my son's in Groningen, my son's doing exactly the same. He's in Groningen in the north of uh, which is in the Netherlands and Excellent. studying in English, studying in English. And he yeah. was actually in, in the UK and didn't like it. He said most of the British students were there to party and he could party without me paying all these high fees. Yeah. <laughs> so the Netherlands is expensive to live, but the fees are very competitive compared to a lot of countries for international students. So, so yeah. that's, I, I guess you're in the same situation there you've just got to you know I, I don't know I don't want to dig too much into your family finances you need to make a bit of money but not not as much as Florian right <laughs> well yeah I, I'd say that you know he had probably a little more financial pressure from being in Switzerland which is why I moved to, to to Bangkok and it's not really an option for him to say move to you know you know I don't know Budapest or I don't know Prague or Krakow uh, whether the cost of living might be slightly different but I would say I would say that you know you, you asked about our finances and everything like that and I think the, the, the broader message that I would share with your audience is um, the sooner you can get to break even or better um, you know uh, the, the, the less pressure and stress you will feel um, you know by growing your business you can constantly ratchet up your salary but you know you have to have your salary follow uh, the situation and and then you know all the other benefits will come and and you know Akiman, I, I don't know how long did it take before you kind of almost felt like you were, you were out of the woods no it took forever I mean that's the <laughs> thing and I want to it took literally it took forever <clears throat> uh, we have something in common I'll, I'll, I'll I'm going to address that in a second but we another thing we have in common and but I think I want to share with people and it's particularly relevant today because you can work wherever you want but I I when I reflect on my life and the money whatever that I made over the years and stuff like that. Living in living in Poland was a massive competitive advantage uh, for me. And I have to believe, okay, when you were in Singapore, maybe that was not the case. But when you realize that you went to Bangkok, it has to be the case that all of a sudden, you know, we make whatever X, like everybody makes X, but our X is worth a lot more because we get to keep a lot more of it. If we all, if, if I make the same as some other guy, um, you know, I'll just say a funny thing. I remember meeting a guy, I was uh, traveling in business class. I was in a, uh, and, and a guy, same size, let's say company uh, as mine at the time. And I always traveled in business class and he was there for the first time. He was asking me, how do you do this? What's this? Like, what's this? What's the other thing? Because he'd been living in a high cost country. <laughs> and so even though it's the exact same thing, he just wasn't taking home. He wasn't just making as much mo- the same amount of money. It's, it's, it's a stupid example, but it really does. Uh, it really does show that over time, this, this compounds. And back to your question about like me in Poland, like living here, I, I did a slog, Andrew, you would never have done it. I don't think because all my American friends were like, you're st- like, what are you doing? <laughs> like they were all making like six figures and like we're the New York guys. And I was just like, and, and, and I want to say it was a good 10 years or maybe 15 until like just slogging away and multiple businesses, but just slogging away and not really doing anything, basically, not making anything, but surviving, surviving, mm. like, but, but really, I started to make some headway after, let's say, 10 or 15 years. So it takes, 
I mean, the, I, the three is, in, in my case, I was lucky that I, I, I had probably three or four in crack. I'd, but I was, I started like, about, I think about three years before Kimon, but I was lucky that I actually had quit a, a well-paid job in the UK and the company I used to work for carried on paying me as a freelancer for about two months after I quit on a day rate, which earned me more than my previous year's salary because they were desperate. They needed a consultant in Poland. And so I had that kind of cushion. But but you know, being able to move to a low-cost country and having enough money to mean you don't have to take money out of your business for a year or two can be a very, very good way to kick off a kick off a business. It just takes the pressure off it. Yeah. You know, Move, 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 moving and crack is not as cheap as it was, but moving here, moving to moving to a low cost country while you're getting yeah, things. Actually, going thanks, later. Richard. You actually drew attention to what I want. Like, I think the result of that was I was pouring everything back into the business. I didn't say that, but actually, you just you, you actually. I think I was pouring everything back in the business. That yeah. meant I was just because uh, because I, I I required less. I had more that I could pour back, and obviously that paid dividends. You know, down the line that. Mm. So, yeah. 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 Hmm. So I'm just wondering where we go from here, or <laughs> I sort of feel that. Well, I, I feel that. I, well, I, I want. I know. I know. I know what I want to let ask me, you. Let me, let me throw something out here, which, which again, it meant to be beneficial for your audience, right? Um, so if you're a young person today, you're you're either going to college or 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 you're not going to go to college. There there are lots of jobs out there that you don't need to go to college for, and you can make a lot of money. I mean, there are a lot of people doing programming on game creation and all kinds of things, content creation. Um, so no matter which one you choose, um, they, they can lead. If you want to travel or if you want to see the world, there's a couple of different ways to do it. I think the more traditional route is probably you're within a company, you have to work for a couple of years, and maybe something will open up uh, in, a, in an overseas market. And you have to decide whether or not you want to take that or not. And you get your first overseas posting. So you can transfer within companies. Uh, and that usually comes as you start to produce. So if people see you as somebody who's doing well, contributing, taking on more roles, you know, they'll send you out into a less, less desirable market um, that you know, the more established uh, players may not want to go to. Um, and that's your, that's your opportunity. You, you take it and uh, you, you, know, you do it for a couple of years and you, know, you just don't know what unforeseen benefits might come Absolutely. your way from the people you meet, from what you learn. And quite frankly, you know, you come out to Southeast Asia and, you know, some of these markets are cowboy towns and you, you learn how, how business is done. And then you go back to squeaky clean Singapore and you see a different way and you think, you know, what's the pros and the cons? Um, so, so that said, I think, um, you know, there's a couple of different ways to travel and see the world if that's what you'd like to do. And I, I think the language industry also is quite exceptional in that regard. There's a lot of, you know, it's just very international by nature. And, and so, you know, you can do it through school, you can do it through trade you can do it through your own business um so and there's nothing stopping you as 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 both of you have shown you can mm. get up and get on a plane and go do it um, yeah. and I, I want to ask about you referred back to your time at Musk and managing people as you're sort of facing the sort of scaling from seven people and even employing seven or eight people that's still like a huge difference from just working by yourself but in terms of the stuff that you and Florian think are important in terms of how to how to manage people, attract them, make sure that they're happy to stick, because it's tough being a small company, getting people to come and work for you, because like none of your friends have heard of Slater, and you know I'm, I'm putting you in the position of an employee. It's not, you may be famous in the industry, but it's not that easy for a small company to get really smart people to come and join you. So what do you, and, and which means the way you manage people is ultra important. So if you're going to share what you think is important in terms of being an employer who you know gets the 
best out of people, makes them work really hard, and they're happy. What do you do? <sighs> that's a that's a lot a lot of responsibility there. You know, uh, you, <laughs> you, as I well, I think I think when you're looking um, as a young company, you you have to look for people with with with. A, a great attitude you know there are people out there who who kind of want to do something um but they also are somewhat flexible and adaptable and you know are team players and are willing to kind of go beyond their their typical job description and they may even view those as opportunities they're also looking i would say if you're looking to expand um your own personal development do look to small companies because they'll give you more responsibility across more areas then any large company, it's kind of like like Merce Data. Here's here's your box. Here's your box. Okay, now you're a technician, so your technician's path is is this. Um, so so you know you have to look for people who want a little bit of freedom, a little bit of you know you have to make some trades. You know, and I think us being and working remotely, we we were ahead before COVID of you know nine to five. You got to be in the office. Why aren't you at your desk at 9 a.m.? You know, and, and we had to move towards a deliverables framework. So, you know, when is that report due? Are we getting enough articles out a day? Um, and then, you know, using productivity tools. So, you know, Florian spotted Asana and, and we use Asana for our editorial workflows and other project management and other workflows. Um, so you have to build workflows that work for people, communications that work for people. Then it becomes your communication style. And, you know, and everyone's under stress. So you have to remember that other people might be under stress too. And you just try to nurture it and bring it along. And then of course, you know, everyone wants to earn a living and, and everyone wants to be happy. So it's how do you treat people at work and do you treat them with dignity and do you treat them the same way you want to be treated? Um, and then if it's something's not working out, then, then you can have conversations. But it's really upon you as a leader, if you will, to try and convey what you need or what you expect when you expect it. You have to help people with the tools, you know, and then hopefully they bring in some knowledge and they bring in some energy and they bring in some adaptability. And then, you know, you're working together in this much more fluid situation. And, and then you have to celebrate some wins. You know, you have to, you have to pat people on the back. You have to, you know, the one thing that's good about the events business is you can try and gather the team in different locations and say, oh, let's, let's all meet yeah, here. Yeah, you get the little, there you get, uh, you get the, um, the social aspect and the, the integration. Uh, yes. It's yes. So it's not easy. Um, but, you know, um, thankfully, we've been very, very fortunate. Uh, and there are people that reached out to us. Esther, our research director, reached out to us. She knew people, you know, Anna, she knew Anna, who's on our research team now. So next thing you know, word of mouth starts to bubble yeah. up and they're like, oh, these guys are all right, you know? Yeah. They, they yeah. And as you treat, and that's back to what I was saying, that bank of goodwill, as you treat people well, then they'll be more inclined to do stuff for you, which is like make referrals and find other good people. Like yes. I like working here. These guys are cool. Cool. Um, Richard, any final uh, comments? Before no, I, I, was, I was just thinking, you know, you, you're talking about taking the company to the next level and suppose it works out and you go up to like 40 people and, you know, financially it's working and Florian can pay his school fees and all, you know, that kind of stuff. Do you see us, and you, you, you look to me as if you're in your like your 40s or 50s, would I be right in like getting your age right? Uh, I am in my mid 50s, yes. Okay, okay. So, What's, are you going to sell the business? I mean, you, you're consulting on M and A, but would you would you become part of some big media events business, and do, or would this be something you'd carry on, hire someone to run it, and be an owner forever? Do you have like a, a capital market strategy for your ownership down the line? 
Well, I, I think the positive is we're, we're, we're entering a phase where, you know, it, there's a good there's a good cash flow coming out of the business. It's, it's not exactly, you know, silly money or anything like that, but uh, there's some comfort. Um, there's something to build from from here. Uh, and, and so, you know, on a personal basis, even if we were to sell the business or something were to go wrong or the business were to close, I, I enjoy inter- engaging with people. So I'd probably keep working in some capacity anyway. And even in this business, mainly, you know, if this is, does really well, we want to get really capable managers in. And then, you know, do I really want to work like I am now 50, 60 hours a week, uh, you know, <laughs> into my 60s, <laughs> 70s? And the answer is, you know, not really. Um, <laughs> But, but that said, um, you know, if, if somebody were to come along and say, you've got a great business and we want to pay you, you know, X, uh, you know, a premium for five years into the future or something, um, you, you take a look at it and you, you either say yes or no. So are we actively trying to shop the business around? No. Do we have an exit plan? No. But, you know, um, I, think, I think what's more interesting is once you have a platform for a business, um, other opportunities start to present themselves. So there may be other people who are involved in the business and they're asking for your advisory. And the next thing you know, maybe you're you're, a non-executive director on a board of a company. Maybe you're starting to invest in another company. Exactly. Maybe something else. So the world starts to open up for you. Mm -hmm. So so again, we're at this moment where who knows what the future will bring. (laughs) Yeah, but but look, I I strongly believe that... uh, uh, like I think, and if you're in the MA side of it, a lot of people are they're, they're what we call putting lipstick on the pig when they're getting ready to sell it. And actually, the truth is, just try to build the best business that you can every single day. And you, as you're saying, I mean, you're particularly in a nice spot with this media. You have lots of exposure, but like opportunities will happen. That's what yeah. I would say. Is don't like it's nice to have call them dreams, <laughs> these exit plans, but like. Dreams will take care of themselves if you're if you're if you're creating value and you're and, and you're building something and you're building something good. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's certainly like one opportunity leads to another. And just reminded that you know my business, the barcode systems company, the fact I was running that led me to meet Kimon, and the business I've done with Kimon has been way more successful than the the barcode business. The barcode <laughs> business is still exist, but that, and then there's another business I spun out of the barcode business that actually makes more money than it's not bigger, but it makes more money than the barcode business. So you do one thing, and it can lead you into other opportunities. And so, so the barcode business is just a, like a, a an incubator. A <laughs> it's not really a real company. It's just a segue into other things. No, barcodes are everywhere. <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, the. I, I, I think is, is there anything we haven't asked you or you'd like to share just before we wrap? Because I, th- I think we're, 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 it sounds like you've shared a really interesting journey. You're in a good place and it's going to get even better. But is there anything else that we haven't you'd like to share yeah. with our audience? Uh, it's th- three, three quick things. First, uh, you know, thank you for the opportunity. And I think Kimon and Argos are a company to watch in our space. Uh, so in terms of entrepreneurship, uh, again, a lot to learn from that man and how he's built a business and, and the long haul that he's done. Uh, the second thing is, I remember when I was getting in my, my undergraduate graduation and Malcolm Forbes uh, gave the speech and he walked in with this kilt after he'd been on his holiday with Elizabeth Taylor in Morocco and <laughs> gave a 40 minute comedy session. And then he said, do what you like to do because you'll want to do it. You'll do it well and the money will come. And I kept thinking, I just paid what for four years? <laughs> I've had that guy say, do what you want to do. Um, but sadly, he was true. He was a little bit correct. I think yeah. if you can kind of understand who you are and what you like, um, 
when the world throws you curveballs, you can try to adapt. Uh, you can make your own way. And then if something goes wrong, you can try and reposition. And I think we shared a lot of these stories today. Uh, but at the end of the day, we finally gotten to a point where I've taken all of these collective lessons. I've been very fortunate to have a good business partner. We have a business model that's working. Um, the marketplace has accepted it, which is not always the case, you know, and um, so we're in a good place right now. So the last thing I would want to say is just enjoy it uh, because I'm working far more hours now than I would ever work in a corporate um, if I were ever to return to the corporate world. Um, and I enjoy it. And I enjoy dealing with the people and the customers. And I just feel very, very happy when they share their stories with me. So I get a lot of personal benefit. So do what makes you happy as well as what makes you rich. And, and, and you can find a way to try to marry the two. Yeah, I, that's, those are great. That's great advice. And I, I, I couldn't um, echo that more. Uh, you don't want to be, it's not worth any money in the world to be doing stuff you don't like. That's just, that's, that's like a death sentence. Let's be honest, like working in a job. So like, and, and unfortunately, a lot of people make financial decisions. You know, obviously it's a luxury for us to sit here sort of like call us with these westernized, whatever, or whatever, middle, upper middle class people, whatever you want to call us. These people that can just sit here and say, yeah, we like, you know, we're not in a starving, like very difficult economic situation because some people just have to take the best job that they can get. But I mean, if you get to sort of this situation, I mean, I think you do definitely need to be thinking about time and how you want to spend it because as you know, we don't, we don't have an unlimited amount of time. So I think how we spend, it's really important. Anyway, Andrew, I love Slater. I'm a huge fan. I love the, I love watching it. Uh, I love watching it grow. And I'm absolutely sure that you and Florian together are a great team to make this thing, to take it, as you said, to the next stage and probably the phase after that. Um, so thanks so much. I, I found that the Thank whole you. story, I, I, you know, I've met you a bunch of times, but I learned a ton about you that I didn't know. And I thought it was really interesting. And um, I thought the lessons were great. So thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. And we're just getting started. So I'll see you at the next Slater Con. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're back to live. I just saw you. This uh, this all happened because I saw Andrew again for the first time in, in several years in San Diego. So <laughs> that was uh, that was that. So anyway, um, yeah, and thanks. So and just uh, sort of a brief thank you to everybody who makes this podcast possible. We have a bunch of technical people behind the scenes that work magic to make the sound and the video look good. And then we have people at the MBN to put it up there. So if you like it, please subscribe, like, follow uh, us on the MBN or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, that's it. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks so much. Thank Andy. you, Richard. Thank you, Kimon. Bye-bye.